Good morning. It's good to see you on this Labor Day weekend. We're glad that you're here. I want to welcome those who are watching online on Facebook Live. This service is broadcast. Others see it later on our website. And we welcome you, and we're glad wherever you are, if you're traveling this weekend, we're glad that you're able to be home with us and watch this service online. Uh, I want to take a moment to uh, ask you to pray again. Last week, I asked you to pray for uh, the victims of Hurricane Laura. I don't really think that's gotten a lot of attention uh, in our news coverage. Um, five Southern Baptist churches in Louisiana completely destroyed, 140 other churches damaged. We want to pray today for those churches who are suffering uh, from that uh, catastrophe. We're grateful that God has given us the ability to, to meet together and be here together. I want to take just a moment to share with you our strategy of disciple-making. The strategy of how we try to help you become a disciple is first, most people come to worship. This is what God has told us to do, to worship together. And then we want to draw you into a small group, a connection group. And so after this service, I encourage you to go to the Welcome Center if you're not connected, and they'll give you a list to help you to find an age or life stage group that uh, fits where you are. And that's how you get connected to one another, to God, to the Bible, to ministry in our church. And then the third part of our disciple-making strategy, large group worship, small group ongoing connection groups. And the third is Wednesday night Christian development program, where we have discipleship to help you to take the next steps to grow. There are two classes that are just getting started for the next seven weeks. I want to invite you to be a part of one of these two. I'm leading a class on introduction to prayer and Bible study, one of our core classes about the disciplines of the Christian life. Everybody needs to know how to pray have a consistent devotional life, how to read your Bible. Hope you'll join me beginning this Wednesday at 6.30. You've already had that core class. Daniel McKenzie, our newest staff member, going to be leading a, a class on the Holy Spirit, Forgotten God by Ch uh, Francis Chan. Great opportunity for you to get to know Daniel, hear him teach, and to further develop your understanding of the Holy Spirit that you can grow in the Christian life. I hope you'll take those steps and um, be a part of our church families. We grow together. Today, I want to talk to you about religious leaders. I've been a religious leader, I suppose, for all of my adult life. When I turned 18, I was a freshman in college. There was a small church asked me to come and preach for them. I preached for them one Sunday, two Sundays, three Sundays. After about the fifth Sunday, they decided they couldn't find anybody else. They said, would you be our pastor? I became a pastor, literally true, I became a pastor at age 18, um, so uh, ever since I was 18, I've been a, quote, religious leader. And I found that people have a wide variety of attitudes toward religious leaders. Some people, and perhaps some of you here today, have had a bad experience with a religious leader somewhere, and you don't trust them. And it's keeping you from being engaged in the church. It's keeping you from following Christ. You had a deacon, you had a pastor, you had a TV preacher, you had somebody that failed you as a religious leader. Some of you have even been abused, perhaps, by a religious person. And it's made you very skeptical. And then there are others of you on the other extreme, perhaps, there are in our society, those who put religious leaders on a pedestal and become, sort of idolize them and become enamored with some charisma or personality of religious leader that they follow or watch or, or read or, or whatever, and they can be led astray into false doctrine because there's a lack of discernment about religious leaders. Gallup survey every year rates the professions 
that are the most trusted. You want to hear what the most trusted professions are in our country? I'll give them to you from top to bottom, okay? I'll save clergy, religious leaders for the last, and you can try to figure out in this list where they fit, okay? So they asked, in terms of honesty and ethics, would you rate these professions very high, high, average, low, or very low? The percentage I'm going to give you is very high and high together. So here's what, who they say uh, have very high integrity, honesty, trust. Number one is nurses, 85%. God bless nurses, especially in this time, and that's well-deserved. And medical doctors come in at 65% of most trusted. Police officers at 54%. I don't know if that would go down in this climate. This is not 2019. I don't know what that would be in our climate today, but God bless police officers, 54% trust rating. Psychiatrists, 43%. Chiropractors, 41%. Journalists, 28%. Bankers, 28%. Lawyers, 22%. Insurance salesmen, 13%. Congressman, 12%, and car salesman, 9%. I won't comment on those. I'll just let you draw your conclusions. But where do you think clergy fits into that? Where do you think religious leaders fit into that scale? 40%, right below chiropractors, 40%. And I read that and I thought, man, that's terrible. And then I got to thinking, no, that's probably about right. Not all religious leaders are good. Not all religious leaders are bad. Religious leaders delivered Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. And religious leaders courageously asked Pilate for his body to honor him. Not all religious leaders are good, not all are bad. And if you are in that group that has had a bad experience, then first I want to share with you a scripture that you need to hear. This is free before we get to our main passage. Hebrews 13, 7 and verse 17. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You need to find good religious leaders and imitate their way of faith. And verse 17 of Hebrews 13 says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Don't make your pastor's work a burden, but a joy, because it's no benefit of you. So it's saying, those of you who have been hurt, you need to have confidence. You find religious leaders that you can imitate their way of life, have confidence in them, submit to their authority. Now I want to talk to you, those of you on the other side, primarily today, because our passage today, this is to set up our passage, our passage today is in that group on the other side, that you lack discernment, and perhaps you could be led astray into error, and you're too trusting. I'm preaching a series of sermons through 2 Peter titled Knowing and Growing. 2 Peter 1, chapter 1, we've seen how to know God and grow in Him. 2 Peter 2 is about false religious leaders, bad religious leaders leaders, and it's to help us grow in discernment. These are people who seem to know but don't really know God. And how do we discern them? And Peter has strong language in this chapter, strong language of judgment and condemnation. He is ticked 
off in this passage. Because people are being led astray by bad religious leaders, and it comes through. So let's dive in and want to share with you what Peter says and how we can discern the character and avoid the influence of bad religious leaders. The first part of our passage says, note the character of religious leaders. So those that you follow, those you listen to, those you read, those you buy their books, those you have confidence in, note the character of religious leaders. We begin in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, and first thing he tells us to do is watch out for leaders who are arrogant rather than humble. Watch out for leaders who are arrogant rather than humble. The word arrogant, I think, sums up these first three verses. Verse 10, it says, bold and arrogant, middle of verse 10, bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Now, what in the world does that mean? I am not sure. Let me tell you what I think it means. Uh, It seems that these people were in some way slandering or abusing or uh, demeaning demons. The celestial beings here, I think, is they're um, slandering demons. I I don't know what they were doing. We just don't have enough background to see. But, you know, there are two extremes about demons. One is to fear them. One is to dismiss them. And both extremes are wrong. You need to take the demonic seriously without being fearful of it. It appears that they were dismissing it. Ah, so Because the next verse says, verse 11, not any clearer, a tough verse to understand, verse 11, yet even angels, though they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. So even angels don't slander demons when they're bringing judgment. What does that mean? Well, Jude is a book that parallels 2 Peter. Jude and 2 Peter are very similar. And let me read to you Jude verse 9, and it complicates things even more, but it's on this same thing. Verse 9 says, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. What? What is that about? He's quoting a book from the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament called The Assumption of Moses. This isn't in the Bible anywhere else. But in that book it says, just what he said here, uh, that uh, uh, the angel Michael disputed with the with the, uh, the devil for the body of Moses. Well, that's just, just beyond my understanding. I don't, I don't know what that means. I just lay it out there for you. But I do know what the main point is. These false teachers dismissed spiritual danger, and they were arrogant. So you're to examine the attitude of religious leaders when there is an arrogance rather than a humility. That's the point of what are some obscure verses there. It says in verse 12, these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. I told you he was ticked off, didn't I? The next thing that he tells us about discerning the character of religious leaders is watch out for leaders who are immoral rather than pure. Who are immoral rather than pure. Verse 13, They will be paid back with harm for the harm they've done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasure while they feast with you. So these are people within the church that he says, just give the church a black eye. 
a blot or a blemish upon it because of their character, because it says in the first part of verse 14, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning, they seduce the unstable. So these are religious leaders who objectify women, who see them as targets, who come to church for that purpose. Watch out for those who are moral rather than pure. The third thing he says to watch out for in regard to character is watch out for leaders who are greedy rather than generous. Still in verse 14, it says, they are experts in greed. An accursed brood. They've left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. If you don't know that story, it comes from the Exodus in the Old Testament and when the Israelites were coming out from Egypt to the, go into the promised land, they came along the border of Moab. The king of Moab was afraid of them. He hired a prophet to put a curse on them. So this prophet loved wages more than integrity. He hired this prophet, and Balaam took money to curse the Israelites. Well, God wouldn't let him curse them, and blessing came out of their mouth. But he was riding a donkey, and God had the donkey talk to him. It's a story of a talking donkey in the Bible. If you don't know this story, you really need to know this one. Uh, because it's an incredible story. God can speak through anything. He can't get a prophet to speak truth. He can have a donkey speak. And so the donkey rebuked him, and that's the story that Peter is referring to here to make the point that some religious leaders are greedy rather than generous, and he says they're experts in greed and a cursed brood. So the first thing that he's telling us, his first passage is, be discerning of the character of those you follow. Now, no religious leader's perfect. No pastor, no Sunday school leader, no, no religious leader is perfect. Don't be hypercritical. Don't be super judgmental. But it is important the people that you listen to or you follow on social media or you watch their podcasts or, 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 or whatever it may be, that you consider their character and that their character should be that of humility, morality, and generosity. And you say, well, how do I know that about some people? I said, well, that's the importance of being connected to a local church where you can know religious leaders. Now, let me apply this in a different direction to you. I've been applying it to those that you would follow. But if you're a deacon, if you're a connection group leader, if you're a dad, if you're a mom, you're a religious leader. Your circle of influence may not be as large, but it is just as vital to the kingdom. So, would you apply these strong words to your life? Men, women, let me say to you, is there any arrogance, any immorality, any greed in your life? You need to confess that because your character is a vital witness to your children or to your group or to those who follow you. You're not going to be perfect, but we have a responsibility as leaders to be people of integrity. 
And Peter has strong words about that here. Now, the second section says, examine the teaching and the methods of religious leaders. Let's go through some things there. First of all, he says, be careful about unusual teaching. So when you're discerning teaching, it says, first of all, be careful about unusual or novel or sensational teaching. You can put any of those words there. Novel, sensational, unusual. Let me read to you verses 17, 18. These people are springs without water are mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. Did I tell you he was ticked off in this passage? Did I tell you that? For they mouth empty, boastful words. The empty are unusual words that have no substance. So you're, so you're looking for teaching that is novel or unusual because that's what sells books. That's what draws a crowd. And when you hear doctrine that you've never heard before, you know... You think, why have I never heard that before? Because the old, old story of the gospel is good enough to save you. And the simple story that there's a God who created everything and that we have sinned against Him and He has sent His only Son to take the penalty of our sin through His death and resurrection and has sent His Holy Spirit to enliven us and has gathered us together in a church and one day He's coming back for us. That's the simple gospel. And novel and unusual teaching, Peter says, that, draw, that people want to draw a crowd and be sensational are mouthing empty, boastful words. And then second, he says, be careful about those who prey on new believers. Still in verse 18, he says, they entice people by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh. They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. So their target audience are those just escaping from error. Let me tell you, there are two times in your life when you're going to be most vulnerable to false teaching. One is when you're in your 20s, and one is when you're coming out of a tough time in your life. He said earlier, they prey on the unstable. Now he talks about the new. So when you're in your 20s, and maybe you've been raised in a Christian home, but, and, and, but you're going to test your wings now. and You've got to decide for yourself who you are. Or maybe you weren't raised in a Christian home, and you don't have any foundation. And you go off to college, go to the military, go get a job, and now there's all kind of teaching that you're hearing. And so you understand that most people who are, who are led astray into cults, it's in their 20s. Not all, but, but most people. Because that is that time when you're deciding who you are and you're testing the waters and just understand that's when false teachers are going to prey on you. The second time in your life when you're most uh, susceptible to false teaching is when you are in a time of hurt or crisis and somebody meets a felt need in your life and because they've met that felt need, you buy into their doctrine and their teaching and you can be led astray. So would you just be careful That's why you want to prepare your kids. You're not responsible for what they do, but you want to be the best influence that you can. Because in their 20s, they're going to be vulnerable. And at times of crisis, all of us are going to be vulnerable. The third thing he says here is, be careful about those who promise freedom from restraint or judgment. It says in verse 19, they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. 
So we don't know what these false teachers in Peter's day exactly were saying. We, we just don't have enough information to know how they were promising freedom. By the next chapter, he has to defend the return of Jesus Christ in Judgment Day, which we've already talked about. So it really seems like what they were saying, there's no Judgment Day. Jesus really isn't coming back again. They were removing that, that uh, eminence of judgment. And so I think they were promising freedom from restraint and freedom from judgment. And there still is today in a lot of Christian churches teaching of sexual freedom without restraint. Both in the LGBT community and in heterosexual relationships. A survey came out just this weekend, just as I'd finished this sermon, that said 50% of evangelicals say they don't believe that sex outside of marriage is wrong. So somewhere we're following teaching that promises a freedom that it cannot deliver. Because this verse says, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Boy, you need to understand that quote. You're going to be a slave to your master. You get to choose your master, but you're, going to be, you're not capable of being a morally independent agent. You're going to be either a slave to sin or a slave to Jesus. You can choose your master, but people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. I'd rather be mastered by Jesus than mastered by sin. And Jesus can free you from the mastery of sin, but you'll be enslaved to him. If you want to break free from the authority and uh, restraint of God, you'll be enslaved to sin. People are slaves to whatever masters them. You can choose your master, but you'll have a master. Well, examine the teaching and the methods of those false religious leaders. The, the third and final section then tells about the fate of these people. And it tells us to learn from the fate of bad religious leaders. It would have been better for them never to have known the way to, than to know it and turn back. Strong words. Be better never to have known it than to know it and turn back. Let me read ver beginning in verse 20. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn back on the sacred command that was passed on them. And then to close this section to illustrate that of, of turning back, he tells two proverbs, one of them in the book of Proverbs, the other just a popular saying, that talk about the ugliness of turning back, okay? Now, I'm just going to read them to you. I'm, I'm sorry if you just had breakfast. But it says in verse 22, of them the proverbs are true, a dog returns to its vomit. You want me to comment a lot on that or you sort of get, you know, that's not a good picture, is it? That turning back is an ugly picture. And a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. So he's talking about people who have made this start. These were teachers from within the church, but they have veered off into novel teaching. And they veered off into sexual sin, and they veered off into greed, or they veered off into arrogance. And he says they've or like a dog returns to its vomit, like a sow that returns to the, to the mud. Now, when, the question about this passage is, what does this mean? It would seem that it's saying that these people were saved and now they're not. Can you lose your salvation? Because 
I've, I've encouraged you to underline the word know, and you see it three times here. It's the key word in 2 Peter, remember? And it says in verse 20, by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 21, it had been better for them not to have known the way than to have known it and to turn their backs. So it said, that's the word all through that's talked about knowing Christ. And now it says, that it talks about they've known that and now they're turning back. Can a person lose his or her salvation? I think the answer to that is no, and I'll tell you why. Because I want to read to you what Peter wrote in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. And let me read verses 3 through 5. Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So when you're born again, you're given an inheritance in heaven that will not perish, spoil, or fade. So it's good up there. And then the next verse says, And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So you hear that when you're born again, you got a reservation in heaven and it's kept, and you're shielded by God's power until that time. He's got both ends covered, right? So I don't think you can lose your salvation. Well, then let's go back to our passage because it sure seems like you can according to this passage. And that's why some sincere Christians believe you can apostatize, you can turn back, you can lose your salvation. You know, what I believe is that these people never really were born again because when you're born again, you're kept and the heaven is reserved. I think instead what we have in this passage is similar to Matthew 12. Let me read you one more passage that uses the same language about worse than at the beginning. Matthew 12, 43, these are the words of Jesus. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I'll return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Same language as Peter. That's how it'll be with this wicked generation. So here's, a, here's the danger that you start on the process and you don't fully finish it. Those people who repent and try to turn over a new leaf and make a new start, it's like cleaning your house and you're getting rid of sin. But if you haven't put something in, if the Holy Spirit hasn't come within you, then you're just like an open invitation to more demons to come back, Jesus is saying. And I think that's what he, it's talking about in, in 2 Peter. Those who started on this path, and they had all the signs of being true believers. And they were in church. And they looked the part. They were baptized. But then they turned back. It's like a sow that returns to its mud. It would have been better never to come. So, whether they lose their salvation or whether they were never Christians, the truth of this passage is there are people who turn back. And that's a bad thing. It's important that you persevere to the end and that I persevere to the end. Because the truth is, some people do turn back, don't they? Whatever's going on inside their lives, there are people that turn back. And this passage is a great warning. Stay the course. Your perseverance is important because that is a sign of true regeneration. Let me just wrap up and ask, ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to apply this to you. God's saying to you anything today about your discernment. Is God saying to you today anything about your influence or leadership? About your morality? About your arrogance? About your greed? 
Is there any penance that needs to take place in your life that you might be the leader God wants you to be? Is he saying anything to you about your perseverance? Are you as close to Jesus now as you've ever been? Because the Bible has strong language to say of the importance of staying the course. Let's pray together. Oh God, I pray that you would help uh, those who have been hurt by religious leaders to come to the point where they can put your confidence in religious leaders and submit to them so that their work may be a joy and not a burden. I pray for those, especially young people here, those in college, those in their 20s who may be vulnerable to false teaching, that you would help them to be wise and discerning about character and about teaching. I pray that you would help each of us who are sinners saved only by your grace to rise to be like Christ and to be leaders in this generation. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.